Would you remain standing for the Word of God? Whether you receive that through a book, on your, the Bible, or on your phone, uh, if you'd open up with me to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. You open the middle of your Bible is the Psalms, and then to the right are the major prophets, including Isaiah. Isaiah 25, beginning at verse 6, God casts a vision for this incredible banquet. Hear the word of God, would you, from Isaiah 25, verse 6 and following. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering, um, one translation says the pall, that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He'll wipe away the reproach of his people. He'll take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The very word of God. Mm. Continue standing if you would. Let's go to our gospel lesson for the day. It's in the gospel of John now. There are letters from John in the back of your Bible, but the gospel of John is toward the beginning of the New Testament, and we are in John chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Note that he says that right up front. And Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And John writes this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him, the very word of God. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, thank you that you are constantly revealing yourself to us. You're constantly teaching us more about yourself. I 
I'm both embarrassed and humbled and, and laughing at myself, God, for the, the countless times that I just believed that I could somehow understand all of you and put you in this neat box that you would always stay in where I could always understand who you are. And then, God, like you have done for so many of us, you bust out of that box. What box could contain you, whether literal or figurative? What, what theology expressed by human beings could, could encompass the magnitude and the glory and the beauty that is you, God? So thank you that we get this incredible privilege of approaching you, of constantly learning more and more about who you are, but not just learning in an intellectual sense, God, experiencing that. And God, as we gather together, I'm just, I'm just mindful that I need to experience you this morning. I'm mindful that there are probably brothers and sisters in this room and watching online, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces that need to experience your glory, God. Because, Father, we are so prone to building up and trusting in our own glory instead. So, God, we think of those who, who are brokenhearted this morning. I'm thinking especially of Andrew soak up at the loss of his mother and I, I just I just pray God that your glory would surround him that that though he is prepared for this right now he would just lean God as his mother is on your everlasting arms and that you would comfort him and Barbara and Jenna that you would bless his whole extended family as they grieve. I think of, of so many of ours, Lord, who are facing very physical challenges. Right now, uh, Jim Miller, Lord, in, in the hospital, um, overwhelmed with, with uh, the, the insufficiency of our physical bodies, God, to deliver us. God, make yourself known. I pray you would surround him. And all those who are facing physical trials. Oh, we rejoice, God, when, when you answer our prayers. I think of Mike Dawes and I, I think of Mary and Mike as well, Freeman, and, and your gracious provisions for them even these last days. But, but God, I know there's still people out there who have not seen that deliverance yet. And, and, and we just cry out, God, that you would touch, that you would heal. And then, God, I'm just thinking about those overwhelmed by their own brokenness and sin. Oh, there's so many, Father, who are still speeding down that highway of life and, and unaware, God, of, of the physical, emotional, and especially spiritual danger they're in. But I'm thinking this morning of those who are conscious of it and wondering if your grace is sufficient for them. Wondering, after so many times of leaning on your everlasting arms and then as soon as you provided, wandering away again, wondering if your grace could reach out to them yet one more time. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that that's why you came. Thank you that you're here right now, ready to forgive, ready to heal, ready to strengthen. Thank you that you give us this incredible privilege of 
crying out to you. And so, uniting our voices, God, we offer to you the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, goodness, what a... That was, that was hard after all those weeks. Uh, setting aside for a moment, Elijah, he taught me so much about the mercy and grace of God. He taught me so much about a God who loves us in our darkest moments, right? Oh, yeah, he loves us on the mountaintops, but he also loves us in the valleys. And he constantly gives us that promise that one day, it's not about us and where we are or where we've been. One day we will rise with him because of our faith in him. And we will appear in glory with him. Won't that be glorious? Won't that be glorious? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm so excited. Here's the deal. Right? We, we don't have to wait till then. We can live in that glory right now. Right now. Right? And the precious gift to God that he's given us to help us do that. Real, real uh, help in our time of need right now is his word. And so, so excited with you to join the Apostle John now for the next few weeks as, as he looks at, I'm stumbling right now because John never uses the word miracles. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, John always uses the word signs, uses the word signs to describe what he's doing. And in particular, uh, now scholars will disagree on what those signs are, but in in particular it appears that John set apart seven signs to to reveal to us right now where we are, the power and the glory of God to minister to us in our circumstances. And and today we're going to have this incredible privilege of, of, of looking at that first sign. Now, it's a very familiar one, especially if you have been um, following, as many have, the Chosen series. I think I've seen that episode where they talked about the changing of water into wine five or six times. There's a little bit of danger in that because I'm, I'm going to start to visualize that movie instead of being open to what God has for me. But I was so grateful. I was so grateful that it, it helped me. Uh, walk into that story to find myself in that story, but but what John is going to do is going to is going to tell us seven different times when when Jesus revealed Himself powerfully. He's going to invite us to find ourselves in that story and then to to be transformed as a result, right? To not stay the same. Now I, I say that kind of in particular because. I'm vulnerable to that. I'm vulnerable to, to um, wanting to know more information but not wanting to change, right? Not wanting to be transformed. I like my little comfortable life, God. I'm just going to keep cruising this way. I oftentimes run into, I used to say more elderly people, but now I are more elderly. And so <laughs> people like me who have gotten to this point in their spiritual journey where they say, you know, at this point I've made my bed. I'm just going to lie in it. 
Praise God, my father-in-law didn't do that. Um, an atheist his entire life, uh, with the help of some of you, he was able to profess Jesus Christ as Lord on his deathbed. Let's never go there, right? Let's never say, I've med- made my bed and I'm going to lie in it, right? Let's constantly believe that God is available to us right now to invite us into a deeper relationship with him. Well, right about now you're thinking, Dave, you've got a half mile of notes to take care of here. Let's get on it, okay? I want you to think for just a second with me as we begin this whole series about signs, right? And in particular, about the purpose of signs, right? Um, there was a famous song in, in the 60s or 70s, right, about signs everywhere, signs. Do this. Don't do that. Help me. Can't you read the sign, right? Uh, um, but the signs are simply that, right? They're something that points to something beyond themselves, right? The issue is not the sign. Please, we're going we're to celebrate this sacrament here in a few moments. But the issue is not this sign. It's what this sign points to. Does that make sense? Uh, if you see a, a sign that says danger, a curve ahead, the sign is not the problem, right? The curve ahead is, the sign is just simply pointing to it. The signs are not the reality. They draw attention to the reality, right? And that's true for biblical signs as well. Biblical signs direct us to spiritual truth. And I said spiritual truth intentionally because if you're not aware, if you're not awakened yet to a spiritual dimension of the world around us, then you're going to be missing out on the significant portion of truth surrounding you. So, so signs in the Bible direct us toward spiritual truths that are much greater than anything we are or have or have done. Signs, in, particularly in the Old Testament, often involve God doing miraculous things, right? Uh, a supernatural event. Sometimes through a human servant. We certainly saw that with Elijah on Mount Carmel. Uh, but, but sometimes just God by himself, right? But it would be a mistake to assume that all signs in the scriptures are miraculous. That's why I kind of... Uh, the other three gospel writers are not afraid to use the word miracle, but John is inviting us to a deeper understanding even. God used very mundane things as signs, right? He, he told one of the prophets, just draw a map on a, on a, a piece of pottery, right? And that's going to be a sign to people, right? That's pretty mundane. He told another one to lie on his side for, what, 365 days, and, and that would be a sign to the people. I just can't imagine that. And then, and then after 365 days, whatever the length of time was, he said, okay, now we're going to change. And the prophet must have gone, yes. He said, now we're going to roll over the other side for another 180 days, right? Uh, uh, um, sometimes the sign is, is very mundane. Sometimes the sign is us. That's why earlier I was praying that, that wherever we go, we would be a sign to the world 
that Christ is Savior, that Christ is the Son of the living God. So, so signs are, are critically important, right? But biblical signs often authenticate, as we saw with Elijah, God's appointed divine messengers, right? Why? Because the messenger is somehow better? Was Moses better than, the, than Joshua or the people around him? Was Elijah any better? Remember what he said when he was so depressed? I, I'm not any better than my fathers, right? No, the, the sign doesn't glorify the messenger. The, the sign authenticates the messenger so that people will believe the message. It's the message that is important, right? Same is true with Jesus. Jesus' signs validate his message, his words, his character, even his identity. And the signs that we're going to study over the next several weeks here in John's gospel are meant to authenticate his divine message and ministry, right? But even beyond that, the signs that we're going to study in John's gospel also point to an even greater reality. Wow, that's not enough, his message, his identity. The signs point to this Jesus Himself is the divine message. He didn't just proclaim the word of God like the prophets did, thus says the Lord, right? He is the word of God. How did John put it? This very author in his prologue, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. Of God, what he was doing through his signs, through his works, what he was doing was professing. Mark, I'm thinking of you, brother, back there, was professing his equality with God, right? Jesus is God. Wow. We have taken a familiar, but for, for the uninitiated, a huge journey, even in these few words, right? So I'm going to back off a little bit and and think just a little bit more about signs, right? When Jesus performed a sign, there was a purpose behind it. He was making a case for who he is, right? The sign was was making a case for who he is. But let me take it one step further. When John recorded a sign in his gospel, John was making the same case. He was making a case for who Jesus is. I'm, I'm thinking of the book, The Case for Christ, right? What was the purpose of that? So that, that you could see in the Word of God uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God, right? Well, here's where I want to take you. I'm just going to declare it right up front, and then over the next, next, hopefully, few weeks, we will encourage and support this truth by speaking and living the words and works of Jesus, you also make the case for Christ. You might be the only gospel someone ever reads. You might be the only Jesus that someone ever encounters. Speak, beloved. Speak the word of God. Live the word of of God, Just as John used them as building blocks of evidence about who God is, your life is a testament about who Jesus is. 
And, and the sweet invitation of John is for us to engage, to live out our lives in such a way that people see Jesus. Like the highway signs that we see every day, the signs that Jesus did, the, the signs, seven signs that were recorded in the Gospel of John, the way that we live and speak points beyond ourselves to a greater reality. The sign is not the destination. It just directions to a greater truth. So let's look for a moment at this first one. And I always feel so guilty because I feel like we just kind of scratch the surface when we're in worship together. But my great, great prayer is that in, in just scratching the surface, it, it invites you to go back and to open God's Word, to immerse yourself into it, to ruminate on it and to suck all the, all the nutrient out of that Scripture. But our first sign that John identifies as a sign is turning water into wine. And I, had, I laughed when I wrote these words. To fully grasp the significance, and as soon as I wrote significance, um, uh, I saw the word sign in it, right? The significance of this sign. I, I want you to just um, understand a couple of things about its setting, right? The setting clearly is important. The setting is a wedding, right? And I want you to think for a second about the significance of a, of, of a biblical wedding. You've all heard the stories about how a, a huge event they were for most people in that culture, right? But I want to just encourage you that a wedding was and is, even in our culture, a spiritual event, right? It's, it's a sign of the present physical, emotional, and spiritual reality. What? What reality? That two are becoming one. And over the course of these past decades, I've just tried to encourage you. This is a miracle that you're watching every time you go to a Christ-centered wedding. Two are becoming one. Remember Jesus' words, and what God has joined together, let no one separate. God is doing a miracle right in front of us. So there's a very present aspect of what's going on in that wedding. But, but a wedding is also a sign of a future physical, emotional, and spiritual reality. What, what is that? What am I talking about? The union of God and His people. I don't know if I left it in your notes, but, but it's there on the screen. Um, go back and, and immerse yourself in Isaiah 25, because God is casting a vision of a future celebration that Jesus called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And here it is, 800 years before the time of Christ, nearly 3,000 years ago, uh, God was saying, oh, there's a wedding coming. It's going to be beautiful. Jesus is getting married, right? And who is his bride? We are. We are. Right? So, so every uh, Christian wedding that you go to, every wedding is pointing toward this, this coming event. And, and so it's a spiritual experience, right? It has incredible present 
realities, but it also has incredible future realities. And I don't want to lose that. I camped on that for just a second because, because I don't want you to miss that. Uh, if you're involved with anybody getting married right now, we've got several recently married people right here in, in the sanctuary. That was a big deal, right? That, that was a lot of details. That was a lot of stress. Um, if, you, uh, if you had a wedding in your family, you know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody wanted it to be just right, right? And, and sometimes you ran into conflicting visions about what just right looked like, right? And so uh, a wedding was and is a spiritual event, but it, but it also was and is a social event as well. You may have heard that, that at least in some settings in, in, in that first century, those weddings were like seven-day events. They were community-wide. They didn't have a lot of the refrigeration and other things that we have. So when they slaughtered that fatted calf, right, they, um, they invited the whole community. It was the social event, right, of the month, if not year, right? And the social significance depended in a, in a way that, that most modern followers of God don't understand. The social significance depended on the quality of the hospitality. Of the hospitality. It seems so unimportant to us, right? But how, how did the presence of God in people get revealed, right? It happened through people in social settings. And there was something communicated in a wedding about God. And so, so just like today, uh, in Jesus' day, people really wanted to do this right. They wanted to, they wanted to reveal uh, a heart of hospitality to all those who were invited. And if you invited someone, you were expected to provide food and drink for that person, right? In Jesus' day and often in our day as well. And, and oftentimes in Jesus' day and in our day, the, the drink that you provided was wine. So to run out of wine would be this massive failure of hospitality, and let me just go a step further. It would be humiliating. It would be humiliating, right, for the families of the bride and groom. And so, so don't underestimate the dynamics that are going on in this amazing story. The, they're early in the wedding and the wine has run out. So, so understand the significance of a biblical wedding. But I want you to also look and understand the, the significance of this interaction between Jesus and his mother. Now, very likely, and this is speculation, but, but just thinking again to our own experiences, very likely the wedding was probably between the children of a friend of Mary's, right? Uh, it's about nine miles, the best Best understanding of the Cana where this probably happened. There were several Canas in Jerusalem. It meant zealot. So there were several places, especially in northern Israel, that were named some version of Cana. People were zealous for God, and sometimes people took that to the next step, zealous for military deliverance. Um, but but the, very likely this wedding was between people that Mary knew. 
and 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 Jesus beginning his ministry is, was specifically invited to that wedding as well. So when the wine runs out, we have a problem. We have a big problem and Mary brings the problem to Jesus. And and I just wanted to emphasize Jesus was a guest here, right? He wasn't he wasn't the wedding coordinator, he wasn't he wasn't even the celebrant of the the rabbi there was the celebrant, the rabbi in Cana. He he was just a guest. And and so when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to him, they have no wine. I can just picture that for a second. I'm not thinking now of chosen or anything else. I'm just picturing that my mother coming to me and saying, we ran out of milk. Because my mom never drank wine. We ran out of milk, right? And just leaving that. And, and I would feel a lot like Jesus did. What does this have to do with me, Right? And, and what did it have to do with me? Mom is saying, yeah, I know, right? There's a few mothers in this room, I can tell. Okay, right? She didn't say, didn't ask anything. She just, they've run out of wine, right? I, I'm saying that like it was nonchalant. Very likely she was very agitated, very concerned. But, but you can understand why Jesus said, what are you doing, right? What are you doing? I don't know, but Mary understood things about Jesus that other people did not understand at that time. I'm going to make a case in a second for saying she didn't understand everything. But, but, but she certainly understood that somehow the solution to this problem was Jesus. I didn't mean to say it that way, but boy, that might be the, the one takeaway God wants you to have, right? When you're in that untenable situation, somehow, in a way that you can't see or completely understand, the solution to the problem is Jesus. It's Jesus. That's what makes it interesting, doesn't it? Uh, The way Jesus reacted to her. Jesus seems to resist. He says, and this is a phrase that appears another eight or nine times in the Gospels, my hour has not yet come, right? Uh, um, he actually uses a word that it's easy. Uh, if, I, if I said it to my mama, I would get slapped, right? If I said, woman, what does this have to do with me? I would get that Presbyterian slap, right? Um, it doesn't, it's not quite that strong. Uh, it, it, it would be more like saying, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? But when was the last time you called your mother, ma'am, right? Now, I know some of you are from the South and you do that all the time. Um, I'm from California and we never did that. Um, we'd say mom, or in the chosen, the way Jesus uses the Hebrew word for that, ima, right? Um, you'd use some term of endearment, right? And so, so he's, he's drawing a line in the sand, right? Jesus seems to resist. Why? What does this mean? His hour has not yet come. What hour are we talking about? Every other time that that appears uh, in, in the Gospels, it's always referring to his crucifixion, right? Well, Jesus, what does that have to do with wine at a wedding, right? But don't miss this, beloved, right? If Jesus does this public miracle, it will set 
in motion a sequence of events that can only lead to the cross. Right? And those of you who are considering putting your weight down on who Jesus is, uh, those of you who are considering putting your whole heart into living out the reality that Jesus is God, understand that that will put in motion things in your life that can only lead to the cross. I say that in both a positive and and a frightening way. It will lead you to the glory that is Christ's work on the cross. But as Jesus himself said, it will also mean taking up your cross every day, every day, right? So the cross is the Jesus' work of redemption for the world. And it's so beautiful to see. If I can just put a little bookmark in right here. In, in redeeming the humiliation of the parents and the family members of the bride and groom, Jesus put into motion the ultimate redemption from all of our humiliation. All of ours. Wow. Jesus was telling his mother that his purpose was to do his father's will. And if you recall, that wasn't the first time that that had happened. Remember when he was 12? Right? Jesus, where have you been? Right? Where have you been? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? Right? He said when he was 12 years old. Jesus was telling his mother that he was going to do his father's will. But secondly, Jesus was loving his mother. He was loving his mother. We forget that that Mary is human. I know that we come from different backgrounds, and many of you have come from Catholic backgrounds that have kind of backwards um, uh, um, attributed to Mary things that I don't think were true. They attributed sinlessness to Mary, but she was just a person like you and me, right? They attributed all kinds of things to her, but she was just a woman like you or me, right? She was a person who was growing in her understanding of who Jesus was. And I love it that Jesus loved her in this moment, right? By telling her, I'm going to try and do this, of her need for his hour, right? There's, there's a humiliation that comes from the wine run out, but there's a much greater humiliation that comes from falling short of the glory of God. There is a much greater humiliation that comes from sin, and Jesus was preparing to solve that humiliation, to go after that one, right? He was telling her that there's much greater humiliation, Mom, that, that, that I need to overcome He was telling her that there is a salvation much greater than her public humiliation. I I don't have time, but but go back to where where is that? Luke 2, right? In Mary's Magnificat, when she understood that she would bear the Christ child. And she speaks of humiliation. 
But it's, it's the physical humiliation that comes from the oppression of the Romans. It's the physical humiliation of not knowing her future and having her future looks like it's going to be wrecked by the news that the angel brings. There was all kinds of humiliation. And, and, and Mary speaks of that in her Magnificat, right? But, but she had a phenomenal understanding of Scripture. But she did not have a complete understanding of Jesus. What was Jesus doing? Uh, this is so crazy. But he was evangelizing his mother. He was bringing the good news. That he was looking far beyond the humiliation of no wine. He was looking far beyond that to a, a solution for sin and disease and, and even death, right? Wow. So, so grasp if you can, immerse yourself in the significance of this interaction between Jesus and his mother. Mary brings the problem to Jesus. Jesus seems to resist, but Mary trusts Jesus with the outcome. Right? I don't know what her attitude was as she left, but she spoke to the servants, and she said to the servants, just do whatever he says. Right? If my mom did that, I'd go get the milk, right? Um, But Jesus is able to transcend even her intentions of the moment. And that that brings us to this incredible, this incredible third thing I want you to understand the significance of. I'm just going to highlight it for you, but invite you to meditate on it. And that was the transformation of the water into wine. Jesus takes the water that was meant to symbolically purify, right, and and totally changes the molecular structure of it, makes it into new wine, right? Well, uh, judging from the Isaiah passage, he didn't make it into new wine. He made it into the best wine that anyone had ever tasted. That means it was, he made it into aged wine. The wine that Isaiah had prophesied about 800 years before. And, and where am I going with this? I want you to see that, that significance now over the Gospels from cistern water, right? Jeremiah said, why are you trusting in dead water, cistern water that has bugs in it and dead animals and all those kinds of things? I want to invite you to something greater, to living water, right? I want to invite you to to have within yourself this wellspring of living water that, that you no longer need to ever thirst spiritually for, for truth or for relationship or for love. All those things are provided through living water. Right? And now look at what Jesus is doing. Because he's giving you and me a picture of what is yet to come. You have put your trust. I'm getting too excited. You put your trust in the living water. Amen? Yeah. He said to the woman in, in John 4, if you knew who was asking you these questions, you would ask him and he would give you living water. You've done that. Most of you have done that. But there's more, beloved. And it's, and it's as palpable as the difference between water and wine. I had this moral dilemma 
I wanted so bad to serve communion with wine today, right? And we don't, we don't do that here because we do not want to cause anyone to, stu- to stumble or to trigger. But do not miss the significance. Can you taste the difference between Merlot and grape juice? Can you? Yep. Can you taste the difference between wine and water? That's the kind of difference we're talking about. That's the kind of difference, beloved followers of Jesus, that we still have in front of us. Right? How did Paul put it? Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, right? The old has passed away. The water is gone. The, the new has come. The wine is here. We are not the wine. No, the wine is here, though. We are simply the vessels of it. In 2 Corinthians, again, we have this treasure in jars of clay, right? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not about us. It's about the gospel. And, and the wine is the gospel. We don't have time today, but the new covenant of grace in the gospel supplants the covenant of works that we have been spending our lives trying to do. We've tried to do it on our own strength, and God says you can't do it on your own strength. But I've already done it. The gospel, again, is not spelled D-O. The gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. It's already been done for you. So let me just conclude here. Come on up, worship team. The purpose of the seven signs in John, right? Um, All of these signs are called signs, not miracles in John's gospel. Some form of the Greek word for sign, which is semea, is used by John in reference to each of the seven signs that we'll look at. But these signs share a common, accumulative, a collective purpose, and that purpose is in your memory verse, right? That purpose is in your memory verse. These are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, right? So first, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why we're looking at these. Even those of us who put our trust in Jesus at 7 or at 13 or at 30, um, there's more of Jesus for us to believe. But especially that by believing, we might find life in his name. If you're at that point, in your life where you recognize right now, you know that you have not put your weight down. You can, you can change that today. The Apostle Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is a done deal. If you're at that place, I beg you, it's not about you. It's about what God did for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Put your weight down on him. But, but the rest of us, some of us who've known Jesus for 
40, 50, 60 years, right? There's a purpose for us, too, that we would behold anew the glory of Jesus, right? How did John, this same author, put it in, in John 1, 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Have you wrapped your brain around the glory of Jesus? It's here. Right now, this is just a sign. This is a symbolic act of obedience that invites us to behold his glory. That invites us to to know again, to remember, right, what Jesus Christ has done. What we're going to do is just invite you while we worship to, beginning with those of you in the back, if you would, to make your way down the side aisles uh, and, and to pick up the bread and pick up the cup and then return to your seats. And then when all have been served, we'll partake of those elements together. Let me just say, if you are here today and you're not at that place, that's okay. There is no judgment upon you at all. We're just honored that you're here. This is an opportunity for those who have put their trust in Jesus to make that real again. There's real grace here in these elements for you today. Come. Come to the table of the Lord, would you?